0: You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference Podcast. The tenth annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the nineteenth and twentieth of august twenty twenty two. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Naomi McAreevy from University College Dublin, entitled Hunger Trauma and the 1641 Depositions.
1: Hunger was a key part of Protestant representations of traumatic suffering during the 1641 Rebellion. Deponents from one end of the country to the other testified that they and other Protestants were starved, often to death. Some deponents provided broad estimates of the scale of death by starvation, but the majority offered small-scale, first-person accounts of hunger. Starvation was depicted as a lingering, languishing death. That starvation was worse than sword or halter, as Henry Jones put it, was felt by many. Marjorie Barlow recalled that when she and her children were driven from their home, her poor, near-starved children cried unto her to go out and rather be killed abroad than lie in a hole to be starved. Starvation, and especially death by starvation, was particularly associated with infants and children. The infant who starved to death through a lack of breast milk was a key trope in the infantilisation of hunger. In hearsay accounts, children died when they were cut off from their supply of breast milk by the murder of their mothers. John Naughton testified that when a breastfeeding mother was thrown into a hole by the rebels, she quote, desired that if they would bury her alive, that they would also bury with her her said sucking child, because she knew they would kill or starve it. But according to Naughton, the rebels refused that request, and the poor infant starved and died in the streets. Eyewitnesses testified that their own infants starved to death after being abandoned by their Irish wet, wet nurses, so there's there's not the same emphasis on uh, the, the murder of the mother, it's about the, the abandonment by the Irish wet nurse. A father, John Sibbs, said that he having two children that did suck, their nurses were commanded to bring them to this deponent's wife, their mother, where, to his great grief, the infants, by cold and want of food, died shortly after. And then a mother, Anne Reid, testified that when her young male sucking child was returned to her by his wet nurse, she had not wherewith to with relieve the child withal, so as he by cold and famine died. Reid thus said what Sibs only implied, that she had no milk to feed her baby. And so there's a kind of a gendered expression of, of trauma there. So if dry-breasted mothers could only bear witness to their children's starvation and death, Some fathers recounted desperate attempts to find alternatives to breast milk. Samuel Cottenham testified that his three-week-old child was abandoned by its wet nurse, after which it was, quote, kept seven days by some of the poor English with water and potatoes, and then it was starved to death. The desperate attempt to save the child's life by substituting breast milk with watery potatoes points to a larger trend in the 1641 depositions where hunger is expressed through the consumption of inappropriate food and drink. For in the depositions, hunger was represented not through the absence of food, but in the form of unworthy eating and shameful foodstuffs. Deponents tried to speak the unspeakable trauma of hunger by describing what they did eat, rather than focusing on what they didn't, or that the pain of their empty bellies. Deponents described conditions of hunger and thirst that compelled them and others to drink stagnant water and eat weeds, animal skins, taboo meats, and even human flesh. So I'll discuss each of these in turn. Such desperate acts of shameful eating allowed the deponents to express their feelings of being dehumanised by their traumatic Irish rebellion experiences. But still, red lines were drawn between what the British Protestants would and would not eat, or what they would or would not admit to eating that reflected their desire to keep the settler community separate from the indigenous Irish. Deponents expressed their thirst through dependence on water, which was considered a base drink because unlike the more refined drinks of wine and beer, it was common to all animals. So some deponents complained about having access to water only. George Butterwick deposed that after he and his family were driven from their home, they had only water to drink distinctions were, were drawn between good and bad water, with some deponents emphasising that they were forced to drink bad water, that is well water or stagnant water. Anthony Wright recalled the depletion of supplies of increasingly bad water during the siege of Ballyline and Castle in Queen's County. He said, when at last they had spent all their drink and all the water in the well, and then squeezed the clay and mud to press out puddle water, which mere, mere thirst and forced them to drink. They were forced to surrender the castle. And after Tralee Castle in County Mayo was surrendered at the end of a six-month siege, the husband of Elizabeth Harris was, according to her, driven and exposed to such ones that he drank puddle and corrupted water, and by that means in other ones he died. Deponents sometimes express their hunger by emphasising their reliance on what have been called need foods, that is, wild plants that were eaten in time of famine. Deponents found sustenance in grains like corn and oats. Elizabeth Price of Armagh said that she and her fellow prisoners were allowed only a quart of oatmeal amongst six for three days. Since, since oats were deemed fit only for horses or the desperately poor, Price reflects her sense of debasement. So, for Price, it's the kind of food um, that matters as much as the quantity. Deponents described surviving on whatever plants or roots they could forage. Such foods were an even clearer indication of hunger since they were not considered food but animal fodder. John Breerton said that he was in the besieged castle of Burrows, where refugees were so starved that they ate the very leaves of beans, potatoes and weeds. Beatrice Hepditch said that she and others in the besieged castle of Ballyally in County Clare ate nettles, docks and other weeds. A spectrum of meat foods were thus gathered together under the category of weeds, as deponents described, and what they saw as surviving on animal fodder. Many deponents supplemented their diet with meat that was considered unfit for human consumption. So Ellen Matchett deposed that on the occasions when she and her daughter got but the brains of a cow dead of diseases, boiled with nettles, they accounted (laughs) that good fare. Some deponents said that they ate the flesh of animal breeds that were deemed not for consumption, such as horses. John and Francis Rinders testified that they were among those in Castlebank who were driven for six weeks to feed upon horse flesh. Others testified that they were forced to supplement their diet with other kinds of taboo animal flesh. John Brereton was among those in the besieged Castle of Burroughs in Queen's County who were enforced to feed upon the flesh of horses, dogs. Cats and crows. Words like driven and enforced are frequently used by the deponents to underline how they were compelled by starvation to eat such um, shameful foodstuffs. That phrase um, feed upon also recurs as deponents likened their eating to that of dogs. And the deponent's shame in eating dogs was compounded by accounts of dogs feeding upon Protestant corpses which raised the horrifying possibility that they might have been eating animals that had eaten humans. From the early months of 1642, so right at the beginning of the deposition process, deponents testified that the bodies of murdered Protestants were left to be devoured by dogs or other beasts. Um, And that word, uh, devoured, noted because it comes up again. Um, Later deponents testified that they actually saw dogs feeding upon the bodies of of, um, Protestants and that's a kind of trajectory in the depositions process. The further in to the 1640s you get, the more um, extreme uh, accounts become as print um, starts to kind of make its uh, influence on the stories that the eyewitnesses tell. Anthony Stevens supposed that in Derry and Antrim he saw, quote, very great numbers of the persons of murdered British Protestants thrown upon heaps, and stripped naked both men, women and children, and saw the very dogs feed upon their carcasses as they lay there unburied. The transformation of the English into meat represented for the deponents a nightmarish reorganisation of the colonial and natural order. This is reflected in the deposition of Elizabeth Green, who testified that she, quote, heard the rebels in their songs and discourse express that the English were meat for the dogs. A number of deponents said that they had been driven to sar- by starvation to consume old animal skins, eating practices that had been reported among other famines. Marjorie Barlow deposed that she and her six children had, quote, nothing for to eat in three weeks, but only two old hard puckins or calf skins, which they beat in small pieces with stones, and so by mere or pure hunger, um, and edit with the hair and all. Robert Colden recalled, that those in the besieged Castle Forbes in County Longford ate any old stinking hides they could get. And Peter Poore recounted that when the people in Carno Castle had exhausted all their food sources, they, for mere hunger, were forced to eat hides out of the lime pits. John Simpson said that during the siege of Kilo Castle in County Cavan, the Protestants were driven to eat the cow hides, which had a long time covered their cabins and had been otherwise kept in unsavoury and unclean places. Deponents thus spoke of the desperation that led them to repurposing filthy coverings for food. References to cannibalism in the 1641 depositions are vanishingly rare, even in hearsay accounts. The first-person testimony that comes closest to the representation of cannibalism is is Elizabeth Price, um, who was imprisoned, I mentioned before, Um, her account of um, her fellow prisoner's starvation, which ends with the comment that, quote, at length they had, as she is barely persuaded, been enforced to have fed and eaten of such of them as had died. Due to the extreme privations of her incarceration, Price was, as Dina Rankin has pointed out, driven by necessity to contemplate the reality behind the trope which Spencer and others time and time again used to capture the ultimate barbarity of the Irish, uh, of the wild Irish. And this trope of Irish cannibalism appears in one of the depositions. Peter Hill, High Sheriff and Provost Marshal of County Down, provided hearsay evidence in 1645, so quite late in the process, that it has been a very common and ordinary thing for the Irish to murder, devour and eat the persons of such English as they could light upon. And when they could light upon none of them, then to kill, devour and eat one another. That word devour links the Irish with the dogs who also feasted on English flesh. He testified that a year earlier an Irish woman had been brought to him accused of having tried to kill another woman and eat her child. Hill adds that because he was incredibly informed that such a like fat woman had killed and devoured diverse others, he caused her to be hanged. Hill also deposed that a group of English soldiers were ambushed and killed and afterwards their flesh eaten and devoured by diverse barbarous Irish women that lay in the woods and the very bones of those men were afterwards found in the woods, clean-picked and the flesh, first as he was conceived, boiled, eaten quite off the same. But it was one thing for an English man to speak of the cannibalism of Irish women. It was quite another for an English woman to say that she herself was nearly driven to cannibalism. But Price sets firm limits, or she set firm limits on her horror story. She made it clear that cannibalism was considered an act of the very last resort and that she and her fellow prisoners only contemplated eating the bodies of the already dead unlike the Irish cannibals who murdered their victims. Most importantly, though, she provided an uneasy comic ending to the tragedy her deposition had begun. At the point at which the prisoners were forced to contemplate eating human flesh, they experienced a divine intervention as the great God Almighty, according to Price, put some end to those great calamitous miseries by the landing of Owen Roe Neil out of Spain or from some other part beyond the sea. Price supposed that O'Neill released the prisoners and gave them a safe convoy and food to eat, thus saving them from the ignominy of, of cannibalism. Bringing the story to the line but not crossing it was perhaps as far as a first-person account of cannibalism could go. Nevertheless, there are a cluster of hearsay accounts that did realise the horror of cannibalism that Price evoked. Three hearsay accounts mention some incidents of cannibalism that were said to have occurred in Nocknamese Castle in Kings County. This incident has recently been discussed by Annalee Margie, who weighs up the evidence to assess whether the evidence took place. I'm less interested in the factual basis of the depositions than what they reveal about the depiction of hunger trauma. So Catholic farmer... Um, Ralph Walmsley spoke of Nochnamee's castle as part of his wide-ranging account of the rebellion in the, in the, in the county so he, he spoke quite widely he led with the story of a woman who quote forced by extreme hunger killed her child and did eat part of its flesh and these kinds of stories are really common throughout the, um, the polemic uh, um, of the, the Thirty Years' War he also mentioned that one of the besieged soldiers was also so hunger-starved that he took up a man that was dead and, ate, uh, and did eat part of his flesh again, another version of that cannibalism story that is very common in the Thirty Years' War. Walmsley was not an eyewitness, in fact he was not even present at Nottinghamie's castle, but he does provide the name of his sources presumably at the instigation of the commissioners, for they come after his report. So um, many deponents say, um, I, I was credibly informed that, whereas he tells the story and then provides his, his um, sources, which suggest that he was prompted, um, although it's, it's always hard to kind of pin anything down with the depositions. Um, he also um, says that his sources protested, and that word appears about four times. So they protested the truth of their account, which suggests that he was a sceptical auditor, But, of course, that was no bar on sharing the stories with the commissioners. They just wanted to hear the stories. Um, A similar account was provided by Joseph Joyce, who, like Walmsley's sources, had been among those sheltering in the besieged castle. His account agreed substantially with Walmsley's, but Joyce provided some additional details that isolated the cannibalistic threat within specific um, individuals in the castle, he recalled, quote, that one who was a Scotchman pinched with extreme hunger privately in the night time opened the grave of a man that was buried within the liberties of the castle and fed upon the dead and buried man's flesh. And then he added that this Scotchman's wife afterwards hanged to death her own child um, and did eat her flesh for want of meat. The more significant distinction in Joyce's uh, account um, are that the man and women were identified as a married couple, um, they were Scottish, and the man accident- was accidentally shot and killed by a soldier in the castle um, who, thinking him an enemy, that is, thinking that he was Irish um, as he fed on the human flesh. These differences helped to separate, distance, and ultimately remove the cannibalistic couple from everyone else sheltering in Nochnemese Castle, including Joyce himself and draw a line that made it clear that cannibalism was a step too far. This line specifically separated the Scottish from the English, as Joyce participated in an anti-Scottish discourse that was evident in other depositions such as prices. Um, she had said that after being given food by Owen Roe O'Neill, she and her fellow English were stopped by a regiment of Scottish soldiers who, quote, forcibly robbed and despoiled them of all the money and meal they had left. For Price, the Scots had effectively joined forces with the Irish against the English settler community and threatened them with starvation. Joyce's Scotsman shared the English experience of starvation but responded to it in a way that was not acceptable to the English. In killing him, the English mistook him for an enemy, thinking he was an Irish rebel, which suggests that Irish cannibalism was thinkable in a way that British cannibalism uh, was not. Yet the representation of the Scotsman opens up a space where Scottish cannibalism was becoming imaginable, at least by their English co-religionists in Ireland. The most generalised account of cannibalism in Nocknamese Castle came from Chidley Coote, a military commander tasked with relieving towns and castles under siege. Whereas Joyce, as one of the besieged, was at pains to isolate incidents of cannibalism, Coote as military commander, used the third-person plural to suggest that such behaviour was widespread in the castle. He cited the same incidents that Joyce and Walmsley mentioned, but suggested multiple rather than singular participants. Coote said that some of them ate the very flesh and carcasses of the rebels that happened sometimes to be slain by them, and others of them opted to hang up their own children till they were dead and eat them. The vagueness of the expression implied that they were not isolated incidents, whereas, of course, with, um, uh, um, with, with uh, the, the previous um, resident of the castle was so, was so keen to isolate them. In general, there was no judgment in the way Coote recounted the choices that were made by the people of Nocknamie's castle as they struggled to stay alive. Coote described all those driven to cannibalism as, quote, "'poor creatures in so great necessity.'" and he rejoiced that he and his soldiers were able to relieve the castle and, quote, with the mercy of God, put in the house of Nochnamee's three months provision for all the fighting men thereof. Coote's emphasis was on the soldiers who provided the food that meant the refugees no longer had to make the horrifying choice between cannibalism and death. By taking their sufferings to the worst possible conclusion, he amplified the pos- his positive impact on the besieged Protestants in the castle, So Cooke's deposition shows the way accounts of cannibalism, and by extension hunger trauma generally, can mean different things depending on who was telling the story. In other words, the who and the how matters as much as the what. So to conclude then, um, you'll have noticed that the illustrations I've used throughout my paper are about the Thirty Years' War and not the 1641 Rebellion. This is because, to the best of my knowledge, there are no illustrations of hunger in 1641 polemic. Hunger is not represented in the 24 engravings in Cranford's Tears of Ireland, published in 1642. The closest it comes um, is this reference um, to food scarcity in Drogheda. In contrast, um, The Lamentations of Germany, which was published in 1638, so just a couple of years before, um, uh, before the rebellion. Abounds in images of starvation, particularly through the eating of taboo animal meats and human flesh. So it's meaty in their accounts of, um, of of hunger trauma. Such stories shaped hearsay accounts of the 1641 rebellion, but only to a relatively small degree. This is probably because such extreme stories reflected so badly on the victims themselves. The stories deponents the actually told of their experience of hunger were more mundane. Deponents spoke of how hunger and thirst drove them to drink stagnant water and eat weeds, to boo meats and animal skins. In other words, they engaged in eating practices common in other famine contexts. These experiences allowed them to speak of the way they had been brought low by the circumstances of the 1641 rebellion, but yet still maintained some semblance of civility. As survivors spoke of their own hunger, they also recounted how the Irish greedily consumed the food drink and other provisions of the settlers. Speaking in the midst of the conflict, for the overwhelming accounts um, of hunger are from the early 1640s. They're not in the 1650s material. Um, It's just in that earlier uh, um, material. So deponents were forced to confront the new reality that the hunger previously borne by the indigenous Irish under British colonialism, talked about by Spencer and uh, and so many uh, English writers, was now being endured by the colonisers themselves. This sense of traumatic rupture in the colonial project was central to Protestant memories of the rebellion of the 1640s and beyond. Ultimately, it is as representations of the trauma of the settler community as at that moment as the plantations appear to crumble that the 1641 depositions must be read. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.